Welcome to Bourbon and Birds by Kentucky Fried Politics. It's Nick Storm. On Bourbon and Birds, we pour a bourbon and discuss politics in Kentucky with lawmakers, lobbyists, consultants, and everyone in between, all in an effort to get down into the weeds and figure out the issues. is political consultant Matt Daly, the former advisor to Secretary of State Allison Lundergan Grimes. Daly joined me in Lexington over a glass of James E. Pepper 1776 bourbon. Matt, thanks for joining me today. Man, happy to be here. Yeah, so we're in Lexington. Um, tell me a little bit about about where we're at, this uh, this complex that we're at here. Yeah, so we're on Manchester Street. This is a popular spot for a lot of the young professionals in town, uh, and then really for everybody. But uh, So we're at the uh, Elkhorn Tavern uh, right now. It's a little noisy. It's a little rainy. Yeah. But uh, this is a really cool hangout. Uh, and obviously you have Goodfellas Pizza, Ethereal, and uh, Crankaboom, which is obviously a popular spot. So this is a place where the economy is... It's getting right back into the swing of it. It's yeah, cranking and booming. Over cranking here. and booming, That's right? right. <clears throat> and like you said, we're uh, we're undercover. It's you know another rainy day here in Kentucky yeah. on, on top of uh, multiple rainy days. So maybe one of these one of these days we'll get a little bit of sunshine. Yeah. Otherwise, we're going to have to go to Grant County and do this at the <laughs> Ark. And uh, so. That's good. That's good. So we're drinking uh, James Pepper. I think this is the site of the old uh, Pepper Distillery. Correct. And actually, I think it looked like they're still distilling over there. Yeah, and I think there's still bigger plans on expanding their operation. But this is, you know, one of the staples of Lexington, and I guess believe it at the turn of the century, uh, when we were really exporting a lot of bourbon from this area, using the the, the creek or river behind us, Kentucky River. Yeah. Uh, to to utilize that as uh, logistics. Yeah, well, welcome to Bourbon and Birds. All right, man. Good to have you here. Yeah, it's good. I like it. There's nothing yep. like doing interviews over bourbon. Yeah, you should have been doing this a long time ago. <laughs> That's right. You get a lot more interviews this way, <laughs> free bourbon. Well, I want to talk to you. You had sent me a, an article a few weeks ago now, yeah. and it was about woke, right? Like we talk about woke culture, uh, you know, cancel culture. Republicans have really grabbed on right. cancel culture as a catchphrase at the times. But, you know, the conversation you and I were having uh, that we didn't really get to fully have is about how far wokeness is going. And, you know, to, to start off, do you think that, that being woke is a problem for, for Democrats? No, I don't think. And I think the term has been hijacked and it's been used for both sides for their purposes. I think uh, the article that I think I sent you was really, it was James Carville really mm -hmm. kind of just telling truth and he would probably had him a couple of bourbons <laughs> and then he was talking to a reporter and he was just saying that, you know, what we tend to do on the Democrat side is we put ourselves in boxes right away when we're discussing certain issues. Uh, we start cre creating a vernacular or a language that's not really used by Main Street America or Kentucky. We do that in a way to describe our values, and sometimes that creates a disconnect. And I think yeah. what his point was is that voters often get lost in those conversations about race, about you know, social economic justice, uh, equality, because they feel like they're priced out of that 
conversation because there is some trip wires that are set up. And I think that was what that article was kind of discussing. Right, right. And what I'll do is I'll link to that article uh, yeah. both online and on, on Apple Podcasts so people can, can yeah. see kind of what we're talking about as well. Uh, and I think a lot of, and you pointed out, a lot of what Carvel's talking about is messaging here. Right. I mean, like this gets down to, you know, who's going to win a messaging battle, Republicans or Democrats. <clears throat> and at the end of the day, it's finding language that, that relates back right. to the to the electorate, to the folks that are going to go to the ballot box and decide who's going to win. Right. And why I think this is an apropos conversation right now is that we've got, uh, you know, a, a United States Senate race yep. about to start here in Kentucky. Um, you know, there's an exploratory committee filed for Charles Booker. Right. And obviously a lot of where he caught fire in 2020 was around race-related issues. Right. Uh, protesting in Louisville and Lexington. Right. So I think it's it's worth our while to talk about woke, woke culture right. and these types of things. And what I'm interested in, too, is these are interesting times when you look at Kentucky's population, something like 86% white. Right. Right. Like, so does race matter in a state like Kentucky when it, when it comes to politics? No, absolutely. And you mentioned Charles, uh, you know. Representative Booker is different from what I would consider woke Twitter. Woke Twitter can be separate of what a candidate chooses to talk about. A lot of those values I'm going to share, I may talk about it in a different way. Uh, I think Charles is a little unique in that sense that he talks uh, to folks and he is traveling and as he's doing those things, uh, he's not caught up in that. I think that's something that we see on the more Twitter left that is more evasive and causing some issues. But it, you know, it, we find that on the day-to-day -day side yeah. of politics. Sure. So at that point where it's starting to cause some issues on the, the woke left or whatever right. it is, the radical yeah, yeah. left, whatever you want to call it. <clears throat> and, I, and we might be seeing this already. At what point do Democrats start to eat their own with right. this type of rhetoric? Well, one of the biggest things that we learned through these, uh, the presidential election where the, uh, the House, uh, the Congressional, the congressional side lost seats while even though Biden won, we saw that we may have lost ground with Hispanics. Well, one of the things that's in that article is the term Latinx and talking about how that's a term that is really just kind of made up by white liberal folks. Yeah. Uh, and they're trying to be very careful in how they're talking about another, uh, uh, another culture. But in doing so, even folks who are Latino or, uh, or Latina, don't understand what you're saying because you've created a vernacular that they don't even share themselves. Right. So I think that's one of the examples that it gives in that article. Yeah, yeah. So maybe it's a it's a place where we've gone too far trying to be too PC. Yeah. You know, and then we have the uh, the PC police out there trying to tell everybody, watch out, or you're I'm going to cancel you. Yeah, and I, I think that has, like you said, it, it's a eat your own. Yeah. Uh, to a certain point, politics is about addition. Mm -hmm. You've got to add people into your column. If you're really smart, it's about multiplication, <laughs> and you're and you're finding a yeah. way to uh, find a way to bring people into your fold. You don't compromise your principles, but maybe you talk about things mm -hmm. in a way that's a little more common sense, a little bit Main Street. And right now, Democrats do have some of those problems that yeah. are just in the way they're speaking. It can be perceived as being elitist. It can be seen to be too academic. I think it was another term used in sure. there, talking about the faculty lounge, you know, and, and our politics doesn't need to be the faculty lounge uh, where it's the high and mighty Ivy Tower yeah. uh, talking down to folks who you're trying to convince to be involved. Right. Well, you're not necessarily in politics anymore. Right. You keep a foot in both worlds, yeah. so, to, so to speak. You do the emergency management thing yeah. kind of as a full-time gig now. Yeah. But 
as you look out at Kentucky and after, you know, you served Allison Grimes, Secretary right. of State's office, you were an advisor on her United States Senate campaign. Right. Is is Kentucky a place where liberalism can survive and that Democrats can win? And I understand that those are two separate yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, uh, you know, we do have a, a huge Senate race that's going to capture the attention of the entire nation here uh, in another year. Actually, by the end of this year, we're going to be having a lot of folks, a lot of satellite trucks pulling in right. who are going to be chasing around Rand Paul and Charles Booker. Uh, the the reality is is it depends on the candidate, uh, and I think that the candidate that were <laughs> oh that's lovely yeah that's lovely uh, hey it's an active shot that's, you know? that's so, right that's right um, I think it I think Charles has a different uh, race in mind, mm -hmm. uh, and I think he has I think one of the reasons he's captured a lot of fire and a lot of uh, wind in his sail right now is because of how active he is on the ground. I think people still want to see their candidates up close. Yep. Uh, Rand Paul has a uh, kind of a reputation to be somewhat aloof and not as involved. Uh, so it depends on the aggressive contrast between the two of their aggressive politics and their retail side of it. Charles, I think, is prepared to do a heavy level retail where we may see Rand Paul drop off from that, mm -hmm. hoping that the demographics of the state pull him across, whereas Charles could catch fire with a couple of issues that we may consider liberal or to the left, but at the end of the day, they're, they're something that are appealing to the main uh, you know, electorate for the sure. state of Kentucky. Of course, we have to weigh the benefit of incumbency for Paul. Yeah, yeah. He served two terms. He's spent uh, nearly 12 years in, in office now. He's seeking a third term. So very high name ID. Yeah. Uh, of course, Booker's going to have name ID at yep. the end of this race uh, after coming off running uh, in that Democratic primary right. uh, against Amy McGrath. Yeah, and I think Charles is going to have a lot of influx of money uh, and a lot of political capital write off. I think another thing that people will have to be weary on Rand Paul's side is I think the the dirty little secret with Rand is he's wanting to run for president. Sure. Uh, so the fact is, is how much does he care about this race as opposed to setting himself up when, you know, a lot of uh, presidential hopefuls are looking at whether it's Ron DeSantis or any of these, if Trump drops out, who's going to be that heir apparent who's going to try to take on Biden? Uh, and we know Rand Paul sees himself as that. So that may play mm -hmm. a, a, a fatal flaw in his campaign strategy going forward next year. So as a Kentucky Democrat, there's a, there's a well, it's a difficult position to put you in. So I, I won't put you in that position. But... There seems to be a shift happening amongst Democrats, right, of maybe a Booker camp where there's more in the vein of a national Democratic Party right. versus like a Rocky Adkins type sure. of, of a camp where it's like the, the old-time Kentucky right. Democrats. Now, I'm not going to ask you what camp you fall into necessarily, yeah. but, but do you see that split starting to happen, and what does it mean for Democrats in the state? I think that split was more prominent maybe two years ago. I, uh, I think the bigger split, I think, was the Bernie-Hillary split, right. and I think that had a uh, tangible effect in how the Democratic Party was organizing. I think that's less of an effect now. Uh, I think people, first of all, recognize the reality of how tough that race is going to be in 22. Sure, sure. It's going to be a tough race. I think uh, Representative Booker knows how tough that race is going to be. I think if Rocky or somebody like that, who would be a phenomenal candidate, if he decided to get in, uh, there's going to be, have to be a balancing of that. Uh, and people understand that you're not going to win by just pulling one portion of your base across the finish line in order to... Uh, you know, have an effective general election campaign. Right. 
Right. Well, that makes sense. So at this point in time, and we'll have to draw on, you know, your, your situation's a little bit different, right? And, then, and it may be worthwhile. I think this is an interesting story. It's been out there for a while. So Allison jumped into that Senate race against McConnell, made the decision literally moments before the right. press conference. So her, her narrative is going to be different, and what sure. you all did as a campaign is going to be different than what happens with Booker, who's, who seems to be moving this piece yeah. by piece. But being in the beginning stages of a Senate campaign, what is it that that candidate Booker or potentially candidate Atkins or candidate yeah. Gray or whomever right. uh, that's in that Democratic primary, what what's the what are they doing right now behind the scenes? Well, I think the one thing that is probably not widely known is I think what people, if you would consider the Booker people, the people who support him naturally, uh, the allies of his campaign, they're very involved right now in the reorganization of the Democratic Party. So uh, they are from, whether it's the state central level all the way down to the county level, they're, I hate to use the word infiltrating, but they're, they're getting involved in a way that they hadn't before. And not necessarily just for Charles's benefit, but I think that will benefit him when he goes to try to turn out a county by county uh, field game. So I think that's uh, kind of the big thing that uh, I see is happening. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing that Charles is doing that I think is just masterful is I think he is uh, he's adopted uh, whether it's AOC's approach or whatever of social media and utilizing social media in a way that really connects with people. Uh, I think that that's going to be uh, something that we're going to see that's either going to play heavily in his fundraising, but more importantly, heavily in his messaging. And, and yeah. whether he's going to be successful or not, I think a large part of that is going to be his social media strategy. And that makes sense. That does make sense. Uh, obviously, it's a tough road ahead. Yeah. You just start looking at the numbers over the last couple right. of, of cycles, and, and it's really hard to put a map together yeah. that gives Booker over a 30% chance here, or 30% of the electorate. Right. So, we'll, I mean, we'll have to see. It's it's a tough race. But what does that do? Like, a, So you talked about an organizational m push at the uh, county level. They're doing right. their reorgs that right. all end up uh, at a state central committee function yeah. at, at some point in time or a, a state party reception. Right. <clears throat> what does this do to Andy Bashir? Well, I think Andy Bashir's uh, re-election campaign or success is going to be tied to the fact that there's a successful 2022. Uh, whether that's Charles, who really gets everybody excited, uh, or whoever the potential nominee is out of that primary, the wake of that experience, the wake of that field activity, those people who come from maybe other parts of the country who come in to make Kentucky home, to be involved, those people are going to be the building blocks of a 2023 re-election campaign for Andy Bashir. So I think Andy's, Governor Bashir is very staked to the idea that um, that there needs to be a successful push by Democrats in 22. If nothing else, he needs more fellow representatives and state okay, senators right. uh, to help uh, fulfill that agenda that right now the supermajority Republicans are stopping. Well, see, that's what's interesting, too, is, you know, obviously uh, Governor Bashir was elected in 19, yeah. and then... Uh, a set of House races and some Senate races, but the whole House is up for every right. election every two years. 22 setting up for that next cycle again. Um, Democrats underperformed. They lost seats in 2020. Um, to, some, to some extent, that's a reflection upon Bashir, whether he likes it or not. I mean, it's essentially, fundamentally, the Bashir Democratic Party at that point in time. <clears throat> he and uh, you know his father, former Governor Steve Bashir are operating behind the scenes to continue to put people in place at the Kentucky Democratic right. Party to set up infrastructure. 
and and to them have a better turnout than what they had in 2020. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that part of it is the Democratic Party, after having lost power in 2016, I think in some ways, uh, even though it's 2021, haven't had a chance to catch their breath yeah. and get their footing as far as who are, who is the leader. Obviously, uh, Governor Bashir is the leader of the Democratic Party. He bears responsibility for the fundraising and uh, the uh, candidate recruitment. That being said, uh, more and more of the old style political structure is being decentralized. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of it is grassroots activity. So some of that, to a certain extent, is outside of Governor Bashir's control, I, from my standpoint. The other part of it is, I think, uh, and he comes by it naturally, is not an aggressive campaigner. Right. Um, right. I think he is a someone who has been an excellent executive, you know, from the emergency management standpoint. Uh, I've gotten to work with a lot of folks across the country. Uh, they look at what Kentucky's doing, and they're very uh, thankful that we had a governor who stepped in and took COVID very serious. Uh, not all those people are Democrats, by the way, right. and, and, and right. are telling me this. Uh, so I, I think his re-election and then the success of what happens in 2022 and then maybe even 2024 is the fact that he reminds the electorate of what that time was that we were all facing in 2020. Uh, there's a lot of medical professionals that are across this state who are very thankful for that. And I think he needs to recruit those individuals, white coats left and right of him yeah. to say, listen, we know statistically looking at other states that, uh, uh, had we not put some of the more onerous restrictions in, there'd be somewhere between 4,000 and 5,000 less Kentuckians on the ground. He needs to tell that to the Kentucky electorate. Uh, and then whoever he may face come uh, that November may have to put that choice to them. Which of these 5,000 Kentuckians did you not want here because yeah. I did what I did, which was unpopular? Right, right. So Bashir's got his narrative set. Republicans are obviously going to take the, the counter narrative, which sure. is the economic downturns, yep. the uh, costs of businesses are no longer there. Yeah. Uh, you know, th those types of, you know, the the Wallet Hub put something out right. here recently, said that Kentucky's just not doing great on the economic front. Right. So it, obviously that's going to be their, their talking point. So to some extent there's a messaging battle that happens there. Yeah. What do you make, though, Matt, of the... Uh, the Republican hopefuls at this point, not yet candidates, yeah. but uh, but folks that are out there. You know, the former Ambassador Kelly Craft. Uh, you've got Agriculture Commissioner Ryan Quarles, uh, Somerset Mayor Alan Keck. Yeah. Um, you know, Auditor Mike Harmon. There's a handful of these, yeah. these Republicans that are out there that are they're eyeing a, a race for governor. What do you what do you think of the Republican field at this point in time? You know, I think the person who's probably the most interesting to me is Kelly Craft. Obviously, she is someone who uh, has a Trump resume, which I think would play well in the state. I think the fact that she and her husband uh, sit on quite a bit of a war chest have a capability of doing an upstart campaign that could take off really quickly. If there's a huge infusion of money, obviously uh, Ambassador Kraft would, uh, you know, she suffers from the lack of name ID. So yep. she would have to fix that right away by putting a lot of money. The question is if she made that choice, what does a Commissioner Quarles do? Right. What do the other folks? When it comes to Mike Harmon, Allison Ball, those folks, I, I think what you're going to see there once they realize some of the prize fighters are getting in the ring is they're going to be looking at each other's offices across the hall and say, I'm going to run for your office. Yeah. Uh, things that used to happen, you know, 20 years ago in, in Frankfurt, yeah. I think you're going to see a lot of that for them. But it's interesting, you know, we didn't know who Matt Bevin was. Yeah. Uh, come 20, you know, 19, and he came in. And if he got into the primary, 
you know, I think Ryan is a well-known candidate. Uh, some people even talk about uh, Congressman um, Comer possibly yep. getting yep. in the race. So folks with those name ID, if, if they struggle to get started mm -hmm. and Matt Bevin is the name you know and you have a multiple individual primary, you know, there's a chance where you're looking at Matt Bevin possibly getting in. I, yeah. I, I just have my doubts that he's serious about that. I think he's having fun <laughs> teasing things out because yeah. that's just kind of his personality. But at the end of the day, um, yeah, I, I think uh, Ambassador Kraft is someone I think to pay attention to because I think that she's somebody who um, apparently very dynamic as an individual and, and someone who would have the resources to put up a pretty pretty big campaign. So couple things on craft that I think are interesting and I'm curious as a, as a guy from eastern Kentucky, a yeah. guy from the mountains, yeah. you know, uh, her husband, his money comes from the coal industry. Right. Doesn't, how does that play in east Kentucky? Here's somebody who married into this coal yeah. money and, and oh, by the way, this money came from, you know, you make an argument the money came from the pockets of the miners, the guys yeah. that were doing the work. How does that play in East Kentucky? Well, it's going to play terrible for the Democrats. You know, <laughs> she, she's not going to win a lot of Democratic support from that. Yeah. But I think that's something that gives her uh, some, probably some initial credibility with the region, the fact that she can claim that her family has been so involved in the coal mining industry. But the fact that coal is, is really not even the war on coal, which was a cultural war wrapped into an economic argument, is less of a thing today. Right. Uh, it's less of a battle axe that folks like Senator McConnell and others wield. Uh, I don't know that she can or wants to pursue a war on coal messaging. It would not make sense for her because of her background, and it might be able to cover up some of the things that we know that are some negative uh some negative feedback she's going to get from the fact that your 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 husband's been so involved in yeah, the industry yeah. where we've had mining deaths we've had folks who are still suffering from black lung we have folks right. who are constantly suffering from the pains of breaking their back for to keep the lights on in our state and uh, sure we've got a region that's been out of work a bunch of promises that were made to yeah. put that, that region back to work and a, and a couple of people with a whole bunch of money in their pocket Right, and and I think the 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 old timers back in the day used to tell you, you know, they used to, they hated the co-operator, <laughs> you know, they, yeah. they they did not they did not they were not in league, but because of this very pervasive cultural war that we're all suffering from, we've had this alignment in a way with corporate titans, so to speak, mm -hmm. such as uh, Mr. Kraft and others, uh, where they and the worker have now kind of joined up in forces but again i think like i said the war on coal rhetoric has been played out i think it was played heavily in 2014 against yeah. my friend allison yeah uh, and uh and and it played a significant role in that race i think it would play less of a rate uh, role in the 2020 with uh charles booker and i think it would play even less of a race uh yeah. or an issue in 23. yeah i mean how can you claim it at this point we've had you know, four years of Matt Bevin, we've got all but one federal elected. Right. Uh, that, that's, a, that's a Republican. At this point in time, if Republicans wanted to take action and knew a solution in eastern Kentucky to right. the issue about coal, then, then they would have they done it. Yeah. And, and let's be honest, like, there's market forces at work in eastern yeah. Kentucky that predate President Obama. They yes. started under the George W. Bush administration that led to the decline of the coal industry First and foremost, free market forces yeah. that included the cheap prices of natural gas. Yeah, there's been promises made on both sides. You know, I, I think sure. I fault President Obama from the standpoint that he stood on the stage 
with United Mine Workers and he said, hey, listen, if we can find a way to put a man on the moon, we can find a way to burn coal cleanly. But then when he took office, obviously that 50 year investment was just not worth it. You know, we're moving towards yeah. these renewables. Uh, obviously Trump came down in a really $10,000 suit, made a digging motion that clearly didn't fix the coal economy. Uh, but at the end of the day that uh, we, I as a proud Eastern Kentuckian, I wanna see coal come back in some capacity so there is employment. Yeah. I would love for us to mine all of it. The problem is, is you could fill up this parking lot right now with coal and you can't find uh, an investor who's gonna purchase it. Right. So I think the one thing that we smart, uh, I'd love to see out of candidates in 22 on both sides, is talk about the smart economic elements that come into play for coal. Yeah. Um, it's an easy thing to just say I'm for it, I'm against it, but then what's next? And uh, you know, there's a lot of responsibility that happens both on the Democrat and Republican side for the fact that the industry has continued to go downhill and there's nothing been it to replace it. Mm -hmm. So for Eastern Kentucky, beyond coal, I mean, at, at what point, maybe we're past it at this point, but at what point is there uh, an honest discussion with people from Eastern Kentucky that coal's probably not coming back, we'd love to bring it back if we could, right. but not coming back, we've got to move on, we've got to, you know, there's going to be re-education efforts, there's going to be smart right. technologies put in place, right. we're, we're going to put new industries here, we're going to bring high-speed internet. When did those conversations start happening? Well, I think one I can speak for Eastern Kentucky is ready to have that conversation. Yeah. Uh, they've been ready for it. Their um, campaigns are these big tents. They pop up, they come into town, and they whiz out. You know, as soon as they got their guy elected or their gal, uh, and there's not really a sustainable conversation that happens in the wake. Uh, that's why I think someone like Representative Booker may have a chance because he can say, "We've tried it all." And let's try this. And uh, the reality is there's no reason why solar panels should not be made in Martin, Kentucky or in Floyd County. Uh, there's no reason why, uh, you know, whether it's microchips or whether it's any kind of renewable energy source, I, I would hope that the Biden administration takes a look to at the, the fact that the coal economy has gone away and start investing resources in the area that's been most affected by it to put those people back to work to create the jobs of the future, to create renewables to where we can start uh, creating that wealth that was once there 20 and 30 years ago. Uh, I think that is something that I anticipate to hear more from the Biden administration going forward about large scale plans that may have something to do with the transportation bill. I, I think there's a lot of talk about what Joe Manchin is for and against, but I think there, a lot of people think that there's a lot of can this happen in West Virginia right, <laughs> as right. opposed to what does Mitch McConnell get out of it other than, you know, he doesn't want the president to obviously get a political win. So we'll have to wait and see. But, you know, I, I'm really uh, I, my heart still goes out to people in East Kentucky. They have valid reasons for voting for whoever they vote for. But at the end of the day, they feel they're still left holding the bag and we don't have a solution. And, uh, you know, the fact is, is they also accept that it's not a silver bullet. Yeah. There's not going to yeah. be one industry that's going to come in. Uh, whether it's telecom, whether it's transportation, whether it's the energy sector, they're hungry for something. And I tell you, we're losing more and more of those technical skills. If we go to Mars and drill, we're going to take a coal miner who's going to be part of that, you know, because yeah. they have such a highly technical skill set. But we're losing that in our state. They're moving off to states like Michigan or Florida sure. to pursue another career. Sure. Well, I, I, I'd love to have you back and just talk Eastern Kentucky at some point in yeah. time. Uh, I'm going to pivot with you real quick, give you a chance to talk about the, both the podcast that you're doing and, yeah. uh, and the work you've done post-politics. 
Yeah, so, uh, you know, uh, podcast we're doing, Kentucky Bluecast, me and my friend Lily Rochelle, former KET producer, dynamic person. Uh, Great person. She, yeah, she, really yeah like I, Lily is, uh, she is, she is the heart and soul of that podcast. And uh, so we started that in an apolitical, I mean, obviously she and I both worked for Secretary Grimes, but at the end of the day, we wanted to tackle some of the big issues that no one's really talking about or have a different third-dimensional conversation that's not being had. So we are... Uh, you know, once a month or once every three weeks, putting out something with community leaders to do that. And that's why I also applaud the work you're doing. Love seeing you back in this journalism Thank role. You. I know sometimes I may have ran the other way when I saw <laughs> you, but I'm glad that you're doing this because right now we have fewer journalists. Sure. And they're pushing the big headlines and, uh, and, and what you're covering is equally as important. I'm glad that you're doing it. Uh, as a director of uh, our emergency firm, working uh, along with many great colleagues, you know, the I started in 2020. Soon as COVID, you know, what a year to start that's in the emergency management uh, uh, field. And so obviously come March, I was in New England. When the surge was hitting New York and Boston, I was there for, I was in Boston for two uh, months working to build Boston Hope, one of the largest triage facilities. And basically from Texas to New York, we've had some involvement amongst those states in either their testing, uh, the micronal antibody therapies, uh, obviously now vaccination, uh, and then the triage work. So it's, you know, and, and it, I've been extremely busy. I've been fortunate to maintain employment because of that. Um, and, uh, you know, the work of hurricane and storm events, you know, in 2020, I, we not only had COVID, but we also had three hurricanes, two ice storms. So we had to manage that while in a pandemic. And right, doing that with social right. distancing, following the CDC guidelines has been tough, but our firm has been able to effectively set a lot of industry standards as far as how do you do these wraparound services that we provide. And it's, it's, been, a, it's been a welcome change in my life and I, I really enjoy our work. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, Matt, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Kentucky uh, Bluecast. You can find that on Apple Podcasts. And, yeah, uh, anywhere you get your podcasts. podcasts. Yeah. All right. All right. Thanks, Matt. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Bourbon and Birds by Kentucky Fried Politics. Make sure you're following all the Frankfurt gossip on KentuckyFried.com.